Hello, my fellow loopers. And hello, anyone new listening. My name is Greg Bornstein. I am a cultural hypnotist, consciousness disruptor, and curator of experience. What does that all mean? It means that I'm into mind-blowing conversations for the purpose of self-expansion. Now, now, what you're listening to is part four of a limited series under the Open Loops with Greg Bornstein Conversations That Bend podcast umbrella called Podcast Pegasus, a U.S. time travel disclosure series of dialogues. This episode in particular wraps a series of conversations that I had with Andrew D. Bishago, participant in Project Pegasus, the U.S. secret teleportation and time travel project starting in the mid-20th century. And let me tell you, already so far, I've had people say that was the coolest thing I've ever listened to, and I've had people say, get this out of my Facebook group, this is pseudoscience, complete bunk, and... This person should be banned. Well, hey, you have to promote these shows somewhere. Also, (laughs) I love the variety of responses. That's what this is about. This is about provoking you a little bit. And I have to tell you, look, to the people that say, well, this guy's just making it up. This guy is uh, clearly delusional at some level. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Listen to this series of interviews, and then after... Go back and listen to the hundreds and hundreds of interviews Andy's done on radio programs, the lectures he's done, the other podcasts he may have appeared on in the past. Listen to it and see how exactly the same story comes up over and over again from that same place inside of him. Usually when people do this, there are slight alterations to the story There's a financial incentive involved. Remember, this gentleman is a lawyer. He has an entire academic reputation on the line. He is not, he has a book one day coming out, but he, if he had had that book years ago and started doing this tour of different shows, it would have been a completely different thing. He's been doing this for years. A lot of people in the field respect him. So I'm telling you, you can dismiss it. You can say it's just a mind control simulation. However, I had someone say that to me the other day, and then they actually took the time to listen, and they realized, okay, wait a minute, I this sounds pretty legitimate. Andy's a polymath. He knows a lot of things. The story remains consistent. There are some interesting anomalies. Listen to the proofs he's brought up in the series. And I'm telling you, no one so far has persuaded me that he isn't telling the truth. I dare you to do the same. In part four of this conversation with Andrew D. Bishago, we conclude by discussing the future. That was the cliffhanger at the end of the last episode. What happened when Andy visited the year 2045? What do we have to fear? What's coming for us? And also, have time travelers from the future visited us? Are they here now? 
it's a very riveting conclusion. I'm so happy to share it with you. And hey, if you're listening and you like these conversations, please make sure to go to Apple Podcasts, follow this show, and if you could rate it and leave a review, a couple of words to review the show, it really helps us out here. Now, without further ado, Podcast Pegasus, the U.S. Time Travel Disclosure Dialogues, Part 4. Consider this the conclusion. It's all coming up on Open Loops with Greg Bornstein, Conversations That Bend. What is going on with the future and Andy Bashago? Well, it was a Tesla teleporter. And the reason they had such a, a big device and called it a Stargate is we weren't just going, you know, 2,000 miles to the west in real time. We were going 73 years into the future to 2045. They had selected 2045 as the year that they would place a base at because for Project Pegasus, not the Mars Project. I'm talking about a base on Earth. Mm. They didn't tell us where that base was, but um, because it was 100 years after the end of World War II, the advent of the atomic age. And this was the atomic research community that was developing time travel. So that was what a Stargate was doing. And then they also had used a chronovisor to send us to the to the future via chronovision. That was the time they had us look at the Supreme Court building when it, when it I saw it was under about 100 feet of brackish water. Oh, my gosh. But that was not on this timeline. That almost happened on this timeline in 2012, where if we had had like five to six more days or one degree of rotation of the Earth, solar flares would have hit the Earth that would have melted both of the polar ice caps and killed about 70% of humanity. Because 70% of humanity lives within a one-hour car drive of an ocean. Okay. So that, that didn't happen. It, 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 in other words, what we were visiting via chronovision when they, when they engineered chronovisors to go to the future was, yes, the future, but on, on another timeline. And there are so many dimensions, in fact, in the multiverse that if the number of them was written in 12-point type, that number would stretch for 130 million miles. So we live in a finite universe that is virtually infinite. Wow. Yeah. And you, when you went to the future, uh, 2045, I mean, are you, are you confident that what you saw could still happen in uh, the current timeline that we're occupying right now? Well, it was a possible timeline. But again, because of the tripart nature of the origination of events, I, did, I don't know that. I won't know that until <clears throat> that uh, time comes. But then again, I didn't visit 2045 at that base in the Southwest as an 84-year-old or whatever I'm going to be in 2045. I visited it as, as a little kid. Mm. So they'll know whether Andy comes through the Stargate to their location but um, I won't necessarily know at 84 that I'm appearing there. 
Just like when I was in law school in in, uh, 1991, I had no information that a childhood version of myself was popping out in 1991 in Santa Fe, having teleported there from 1971 and and had to get the people at Sandia to get us home. Yeah, that is that's where it gets like really, uh, you know, hard to track mentally, like keeping track of like timeline jumping and parallel universes and stuff like that. I mean, I uh, I mean, you've even told me that you believe uh, you died at one point. Didn't you get shot in one timeline? Yeah, and I'd rather not discuss that. I am writing a book about my past lives. I can confirm for your listeners that I've proven the eternity of the soul. And by the way, we don't have a soul. We are souls. We are huh. souls currently trapped in uh, the ectoplasm of our bodies. Okay. But yes, I, um, when I did, um, uh, guy TV in 2013, I drove past a, an Adobe house that I had occupied when I was a law student at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and and I was killed there. Now, the reason I know that there was truth to that those memories of having attended law school at the University of Colorado at Boulder on that timeline, and then come back into this world somehow and gone to law school at Boulder, is I was met by a CIA official at the um, Loretto Chapel in Santa Fe during the first of my three major fact-finding trips to New Mexico, which was in June of 2003. And he told me that they took my picture. He he told me that the kids who had been teleporting in Project Pegasus were moving back and forth between two adjacent timelines. And I said, oh, really? Hmm. And I said, how did you prove that? And he said, we took your picture to the faculty at the law school at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and some of the faculty members remember you, your picture. Some remembered your name, Andy, and one said, oh, I remember Andy. He was a, he was a dedicated environmental law student. So when I then, 10 years later in 2013, drove past that Adobe house that I had rented as a law student at Boulder, it all came back to me. I remembered what happened there. So yes, I would urge, in order to understand this sort of phenomenon, not my book about Pegasus, which will be soon be published, but a book like The Labyrinth of Time by Anthony Peake. Mm. Maybe The Science of the Soul by Claude Swanson. The soul is eternal. And when we, when we come back as somebody else, we're incarnating. When we use the phrase reincarnate, that's a misnomer. A reincarnation is to come back as the same person. Do we reincarnate and come back as the same person? You betcha. I've experienced it. Yeah. And I had the CIA confirm it because it wasn't because I was moving f- back and forth between two adjacent timelines that the uh, those faculty members at Boulder had remembered me. It was because in a previous reincarnation as my current self, I had gone to law school there. And I knew this when I went to law school at, uh, at Lewis and Clark from 1988 to 91 because something would be discussed in class. And even though I had never previously studied any law, I wouldn't know it. Like a professor would ask, well, class, what do we call that, uh, that principle that we always make 
marginal gradations of changes in the law and we preserve the law and then make gradual changes in it. And I said, the doctrine of stare decisis. Where did I get that? I had never read about the law either, by the way. It really didn't interest me when I was a kid or a teenager or a college student. I just picked it up in my 20s. So what I'm saying is, I knew as a law student at Lewis and Clark, and anybody's free to call Lewis and Clark and check to see whether I took a degree there in 1991. And I, I did. And um, I don't think I was very high in my class. I was about 30, 30th out of 65 or something like that. But I just wasn't really that interested in law because I had already studied it at Boulder. I would, I would have these experiences throughout law school where we would cover something. I would go, oh, yeah, you know, remember that. Been there, done that, remember that. But I wasn't really aware of the fact that it was because I had previously lived as myself on another, in, an, in another reincarnation. So, yeah, I would strongly recommend uh, The Labyrinth of Time by Anthony Peake. In fact, Anthony's from a town in England, Coventry, where I and my fiance lived in a previous life, and we've, we've remembered a lot. Our names, the names of people we knew, different events, different geographic formations there. I've got a lot of data to prove reincarnation, or actually incarnation, I should say, because usually we come back as somebody else. Yeah. We can come back, we can come back as the same person. So there's your Mandela effect for you. Yeah. Wow. What about okay? When I remember, yeah, you know, when I remember that the actual wording of the the Gettysburg Address was that they have thus far so nobly advanced, but then we have Sam Waterston on the Gettysburg chapter on Ken Burns the Civil War saying that they have thus far so nobly carried on. These Mandela effects, I think, are more prima facie evidence that we are coming back as the same person. Hmm. That we, at least we can come back as the same person. I don't think it necessarily happens to everybody all the time, but it is happening. Yeah. 20, wait a minute. Uh, this is, this is so mind blowing. I mean, you, you've already given so much of, uh, your personal time to, to me in this interview. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to hold you much longer, but I need to ask about 2045. Is there technology to look forward to? Are, are there, uh, I mean, as a kid, I watched the Jetsons and we're in 2020 and there aren't flying cars yet, but is there anything, you don't need to talk about the bad stuff. Um, cause I know that, you know, you were running for president president and partly to get us in the right direction so that we can stop well I, bad yeah things yeah happening. yeah a couple of things i remember is that the young people those in their 20s and 30s were very tall and thin and healthy there was sort of an avatar effect huh. some of the older people who are more like my height which is 510 didn't look so great but then again they were actually people who will be younger in 2045 than i will be <laughs> but i did notice an avatar effect Another thing I can say about the 2045 I visited, and this will be achieved if we finally stop asking whether I'm crazy or not and understand I've been talking about a real project. And by the way, I've taken some very interesting calls from people recently indicating mm. that time travelers from the future have been visiting us pretty significantly. I was going to ask about that. Um, I was going to ask about yeah, that. Yeah, let's, 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 let's talk about that too. next. But Yeah, but um, the 2045 I visited was so technically advanced that it's, it's, it's a planet on which you can literally get into an elevator-like device in one building 
and exit that elevator device, not just in another building, but in another city. Huh. In other words, the space problem has been completely obviated, and not by screaming through vortal tunnels in time space like I was a kid in Project Pegasus already 50 years ago, That you know, well, last year, but, or no, 50 years ago in 2018, but two, two years ago, um, was it 50 years ago, but where you'll literally be going to other places instantaneously. Huh. That... In other words, teleportation will be completely reduced to, ta- to practice where there won't even be any sense of teleporting. Yeah. Is there a cataclysm coming in 2024? That's that's the thing I'm scared about. Someone told me that we're gonna there's gonna Earth is gonna get destroyed and it's bad news. I have no knowledge of such a cataclysm, and I was never told of it. I've never heard of it. I never saw it. I never visited it. And when I visited 2045, I saw no evidence of it. So that would be my answer. But I, I don't know. That's good. Yeah. No, I'm glad you made the 2045. Okay. So people from the future. Yes, this is what's interesting. And again, it's the internet. People are, you never know who to trust and who not to trust. One of the things that is a frequent theme with people that at least explored a theoretical idea that time travel is real and or was a thing is that, well, dude, why would they say, Greg, why would a time traveler admit it? People that are time traveling, why would they ever say anything to you about that now? And of course, the first thing that clued me in that time travel, at least it raised that early, what you talked about, the obligatory skepticism, was uh, what Stephen Hawking talked about. The idea that he's like, yeah, of course time travel is not going to be a thing because people haven't shown up from the future here now. And it does raise a question. I mean, look, two points on this. One is I want to know about your experience with people who claim they're from the future and sort of these things that are going on. That's one thing that's key. But the other is you've gone to the past. Were there ever cases where people from the future did come to you up until now to support these claims? No, but not that I can think of off the top of my head, and I don't talk about it in my book, um, but I have interviewed an individual, at least one, but very recently, an, an individual who was approached by somebody who made a reference to Elon Musk when Elon was, I think, in college or high school. Is it 1992? So there's evidence that time travelers from the future are visiting other people. And by the way, the... The Stephen Hawking's and the David Deutsches and the Michio Kaku's and the Ronald Mallets of the world, they're making axiomatic statements in physics that violate both physics and logic, you know, basically the common sense of, of time travel. Because when he, and, and they also, I, I forget what it's called where they do this in science, but they make these sort of axiomatic references to scientific principle and then don't really defend fact. Hmm. So, for example, the picture of me at Gettysburg is fact that I visited the past, and from the people of that time, I was a time traveler from the future. I was just trained not to tell them that, you see? Hmm. So when, 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 a, when, a, when, when, when a, um, a Stephen Hawking, late Stephen Hawking said, Time travel cannot exist because, or, or won't exist or doesn't exist because we haven't been visited by time travelers from the future. That's a mere assertion in, 
furtherance of scientific certitude that he cannot make. Yes. I've, I've interviewed people who have been visited by time travelers from the future. You see, I, I, was, I just spoke with one last week. So the, the, the veneer of scientific authenticity is used to assert axiomatic principles that are just not axiomatic. Right. That's like holding, that's like holding a, uh, um, holding a belief about a person of a certain race or religion or color or national origin that you insist has to be true because what you, what you heard about that people from that group, but bigotry is not axiomatic. It's bigotry. So scientific certitude of that kind has been exploited in our culture to set up experts like those four gentlemen for them to misinform or disinform the public about what really has been going on. Andy, I'm always coming at this from, uh, you know, myself. I had a strong debunking phase in my life and and, and studied. We all do. We all do. And especially with, I mean, look, I'm not going to say I'm fully there either. I definitely, uh, as someone that's trained in magic and and studied Yuri Geller and people that claim they can bend spoons with their mind and all this stuff, and then saw magicians able to do these tricks and actually display evidence that people that were so-called psychics were fake. It, it makes me go, okay, well, let me look for the quote-unquote rational, empirical explanation for things. So I'm looking at this and going, okay, this guy claims he went to the past. Where are the future people meeting him now? But you said you just spoke to someone. Uh, wait, now, did this— Well, no, wait, 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 wait. No, no, no. Let me, let me be clear here. We don't know when we're standing in a thrifty's grocery, you know, pharmacy— in the San Fernando Valley of Los Angeles, that the person right next to us isn't from the future. That that's one thing. That's right? true. Yeah. If if you go to if you go to Disneyland tomorrow, you don't know the origin of everybody walking through Disneyland with you, right? Right. And if they've been if they've been dressed in period clothing like I sometimes was when I was time traveling to the past in Project Pegasus, you're not going to spot them based on them wearing you know funky futuristic clothing, right? Yeah. And and so it's just not axiomatic that all of us haven't had contact with time travelers from the future. Hmm. But I was contacted a, a week or two ago by a gentleman who was quite intelligent. He was a physicist, and he met two people who appeared at an oblique, impossible angle, and then had a discussion as if they were being tasked to screen him for something that they instead decided to select Elon Musk for. Okay, and this guy was sincere, and he was not seeking any publicity, and he was not unstable in any way. He was quite grounded and scientific and and professional. I don't want to say who it is. Yeah. So, so I I have to just refute the claims of the Stephen Hawking's, David Deutsch's, uh, Michio Kaku's, and um, Ronald Mallet's that we haven't been visited by time travels from the future. That is just not true. They're just stating, a, a, making a mere assertion that is not defended by the evidence. Yeah. We, in fact, are being visited by time travelers from the future. And, of course, that's possible because time travel emerged in the years immediately before 1970 and certainly by 1970. Because bear in mind, most of the devices that I was set in time with, both to the past and the future, already existed before I entered the program. DARPA was just tending, testing the response of we children to those technologies. I didn't invent those devices. I'm not a time travel physicist or technician in any way. 
I was mm. a chrononaut. I was a time traveler. Yeah. Yeah, I would imagine. Wouldn't Tesla want to come to the future now? I mean, I guess there's so many different... Po- I mean, maybe it's another timeline. It's hard to know. Well, Tesla was visited by Jack Pruitt and his father, and those that photograph was shown to Alexander Bruce. So there is a nonlinear, out-of-time photograph of Tesla. Because bear in mind, Jack was born in 1934, yeah, and Tesla died in January of 1943. So Jack couldn't have been yet nine years old. Oh my and gosh. yet in the picture, he's he's like in his mid-30s. Where is it? Where did you see this photo? I didn't see it, but Alexander Bruce was shown it by Jack Pruitt and his son Glenn. Oh, with them, them meeting with Tesla. <laughs> you know what? You've covered it in so many other interviews. We haven't even talked about the fact that you've seen Jesus on the cross. I mean, that is just, yes. I mean, th- there is just, there's so many things. This story is, so, where's the movie? Where's the, has anybody approached you? Would you ever do it? Or would it come out as too much science fiction? Um, you know, that's something I'd rather not discuss because, um, you know, the development of, of, of a story into a feature film is always part of the, uh, the value of that production. I'd just rather not discuss that. Um, but we'll get there. I actually saw the movie when I was on Pegasus. Oh. I do know who plays Connie Chavez. And believe it or not, this actress approached me. I don't want to say who it is, but I, I hope to someday bring her forward on radio before uh, she stars in, in the film. But there was an actress in Los Angeles who... Her car, she came to Los Angeles when she was about 20 and her car was clipped and it spun and she was helped out of the wreckage. This was in Los Angeles. And she went over and this nice lady dressed in bell bottoms and funky sandals from the 60s, let her come into her house to call her boyfriend. And then a couple days later, when she went back to that lady's house to, um, to bring her some candies or flowers or, or something to thank her for being so kind as to let her into her house after her accident. She was told by the, uh, the supervisor of that apartment complex, ma'am, there's, there's no, there's no lady there. That, that apartment hasn't been occupied for over 30 years. We just use it for storage. And he took her over there and showed it to her. And that's in fact what it was. The lady, the lady was not there and her, her apartment was not there. So in other words, she had traveled in time simply by being spun in a car accident. In other words, the other car had clipped her car and she had her car had spun around and then sort of spun off the road and she was uninjured but pretty shook up. So anyway, when when that actress approached me about that story, I looked up her work online and I said, My God, you're the one who plays Connie Chavez in the movie. I remember seeing the movie when I was a kid, and you're the person who plays Connie Chavez. So there are some nonlinear things going on in our planet like that. I mean, there's somebody who yeah. spontaneously time-traveled, contacted a time-traveler, and he was able to confirm that she had a destiny as an actress that involved starring in the film that would be made about his experiences, which he had already seen when he was a kid because it was taken back in time. So that that's just an object lesson in the degree to which we're living in a multidimensional reality at this point. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. Okay, okay. I, I want to tie this all together somehow. I'm not even sure I can. I, you know what? 
it, you you talk about American time travel. We started with Harold Agnew. There's also been rumors for years. Not even I don't know if they're actually rumors, but there's a trope about the idea that there's Russian time travel technology. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, there were a couple of devices that uh, Bernard Mendez confirmed for me the Russians had. Of course, the Russians were on Mars, so they must have had the aeronautical repositioning chambers that were being used to get there. Hmm. I certainly didn't see any rockets landing there when I was there. Yeah. But a Russian team, a Russian team in sort of these neoprene suits, almost like ice skaters suits, speed skaters uh, suits, crossed our paths. So the Russians were on Mars, as were the British. Um, it's been many, many years since Bernard told me which devices the Russians and the British had. I think that he was just making the point that the Russians had. We were like one step ahead of the Russians on teleportation. And somebody I interviewed, it was the father of somebody I was tutoring, told me about the Russians having teleportation as well. And then I think Bernard Mendez told me that the British had the aeronautical repositioning chambers that we got to Mars, Tesla teleporters, and chronovisors as well. But, 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 but Greg, let me mention also there's been other countries that have been rumored to have achieved time travel, including the French, the Indian, and the Chinese. And you know, about six or seven years ago, the Chinese made public discourse about time travel illegal. Oh, I didn't know that. Now, I know we all have problems with the CCP and its, its, uh, it, its, its inherent fascism, but I can't think of a greater one than that. How can you limit discourse about something that exists? Yeah. And why do so? Why do so? And how was that not prima facie evidence that the Chinese had achieved time travel that for the, for the is... CCP, CCP to have made it illegal to talk about it? That is so fast. I had no idea about that. What have you have you spoken to people from other countries that have similar international time travel stories? No, no. I I mean I've 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 appeared in Canada and Argentina and other countries, um, but I haven't really focused on time travel accounts from from other countries because there have been few countries involved in it. But yeah. those were the one. Those are the ones that I think, you know, the United States. Russia, England, France, China. Um, those are actually what the original UN countries, right? The big five. Yeah. Um, so that makes that's that's interesting. So yeah, I but I can't confirm any of the overseas stories. I'm just sharing what I've been told. Yeah. Well, look, we're gonna we're gonna have to do another episode where we talk all about Project Mars. We talk about the jump room. And also, I know that you've been wanting to share some more of the paranormal aspects of your life that you haven't really talked about. And I'm sure we could do a whole other episode where uh, we can go into that because I, I, I'm also very curious about those things that you haven't really spoken about until now. Well, I mean, just as, as, as a preface to that, to that uh, interview, I just want to emphasize something, and that is that Stanislav Grof's theory of the self-organizing universe is in fact true. And by that I mean we don't live in a natural evolving universe where randomly we experience things. Everything is projected by the matrix at us. Hmm. And I know that sounds somewhat um, egotistical, but it's just the nature of reality, and I've, I've proven it. So 
Um, I, for some reason in this life, was born a, an experiencer with a capital E. Every paranormal experience that somebody can talk about, I've had. And that's not just some promotion that I'm running as a writer. That's just my my explanation of my life. But again, those weren't random. You know, it wasn't just the, st- the statistical probability that one person out of a billion or whatever would see ghosts, meet Sasquatch, leave his body, time travel, go to Mars, et cetera, et cetera. I have lived the life of an experiencer, apparently, because that's what I was supposed to do in this life. Now, I have some theories regarding a past life that I was in and why a couple past lives I was in, actually, why, why I was rewarded to have had my interest in the paranormal at the same time facilitated by government service. And that was government. That that was government service. I had I had lent to the country in past lives. So we live in a fractal universe. Yeah. Yes, your mother in one life could have been your daughter in another. That kind of stuff happens. So everything is often emerging at an oblique angle to our past lives. So, for example, in a past life in 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 England, I was Robert Brown. But then that was the name of a friend of mine at Cambridge in this life. That's going on all the time. Interesting. Interesting. Emergence, emergence of past information in an oblique way that serves to kind of make us amnestic about our past lives. Um, but so, so I, I hope that your listeners um, come to know that I'm not a, an experiencer with a capital E because I've got a bunch of paranormal sh- stories to share, although I, I do love to tell them. I've, I've enjoyed, you know, appearing on radio and TV and, and uh, conferences now all over the hemisphere. But that, and, I, and I enjoy that. I enjoy these radios, too, and I've I, I enjoyed this very much. But it's because that's the actual story of this life. And believe me, that was not the experience of my past lives. I might have seen a ghost or, you know, once once or twice in a past life, but I have had so much paranormal experience in this life, I just, I've concluded that that's the way this life was supposed to be lived as an experiencer. Yeah, that is remarkable. And that's what I urge everybody to share. You know, I, mean, I was going to mention that, you know, originally the story around the campfire was either a true experience that the person shared or it was a tall tale. It was a made-up story. And that, in fact, is what we still see. That tradition actually continues in the truth movement. There are experiencers who have been revealing things at the risk of their lives, and then there are science fiction fantasists who have been sharing things to say, well, me too. I, you know, I went to Mars too, or whatever. So that's actually the history of the story around the campfire. That's, that's an, a centuries-old tradition among human beings. Eons of history, you know, millennia of history. And so, yet, I, you know, I, I made the point that if we want to be as, as philosophically and scientifically grounded as we can be, we have to focus on the truth rather than just on stories. But anyway, that's, that's, the, that's my life story, is that I, for some reason in this life I was born as an experiencer. And so I'm not just going to be sharing my experiences, you know, in book form, not just about time traveling or going to Mars, but my contacts with the human soul, with extraterrestrials and indeed with all 
uh, higher beings in the multiverse. That's amazing. Is there, what is the best way? We're going to link it, but what's the best way for people to learn more about your work and support everything you're doing right now? Well, I think it's to um, join Project Pegasus on Facebook, where we will advertise the books when they're published. Yeah, I'm so excited for that. I can't wait for Once yeah. Upon a Time in the Time they're, they're, Stream to come out. Yeah, they're all, it's done. It's done. I, I just have to write one small chapter about a time travel play that I was in that was probably for both to acclimate us to who we were in the play with, who we would be meeting in the past, yeah. and to uh, as disinformation. So I have to write that short chapter, but that's going to be done shortly. And then the book has to be edited, and then it'll be out. But it will be the the most comprehensive and complete and truthful account of the actual derivation of time travel. And I don't really go into um, analyzing Al Bielek or the Montauk case very much, uh, but I do talk about what what was actually accomplished with Project Pegasus. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really what I wanted to cover today. I mean, I, I know you, there's also uh, Project Mars and, um, you know, the Mars anomaly stuff that, well, I've had Lewis Michael Reinhardt on the show who, uh, you know, put me in contact with you. And he's also a guy that uh, was like, I've listened to his, I've listened to 300 interviews with Andrew Bashago and it's always the same story. That's why I, I, I definitely think, you know what? Look, to put this all together, someone's going to probably listen to this. I know I'm going to have people in my life, skeptical people that are like, hey, look, this guy, he says all this stuff, but how do you really know? How do we know he's not a mind control victim? How do we know? What would you say to that person listening right now? I would say that that's a reasonable uh, question to ask. It's not a reasonable surmise, but it's a reasonable question to ask. But that is totally behind the timeline of my revelation of this information. Because even in the process of revealing this information, discoveries were made that proved I was telling the truth. Like Win Keach's discovery of that patent that my dad's listed in that mentions mm-hmm. eight-sided bismuth crystals. Or yeah. the discoveries that John Gannon and William Stillings made about the fact that my cheekbone and my eye socket are visible in the Josephine Cobb image of me and I had said for years that I was disappearing from view when the picture was taken. Things like that. In other words, uh, obligatory skepticism just doesn't work at all after the person who is alleging something has presented scientific evidence of what they've been claiming. And that's what I've done. And I yeah. defy anybody to claim otherwise. And I'm very fortunate for the emergence of social media and all of the open-minded people like yourself who've been maintaining radio shows because some of those discoveries were made as a result of that networking. So even though we are living in a time where anybody can say anything about anybody on the internet, it's becoming sort of like the new bathroom wall for graffiti, as it were. At the same time, the positive expression of social media has been the connectivity between fellow Americans and other citizens of the world that has been enabled me to prove my my very unusual experiences. And that's going on even today with um, even the shows about the paranormal that we see on cable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. My gosh, Andrew DeBashago. I am so grateful for you sharing all the stuff about Project Pegasus. We're going to link to it, projectpegasus.net. 
We'll link to the Facebook group as well. And I am so excited to delve deeper into Mars as well as uh, your experiences as an experiencer, too. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been amazing. You got it, Greg. Um, I'm just happy to appear on your show. And, uh, you know, let's just keep on um, telling the truth and serving it. And hopefully we'll get through this rather difficult period in our country's history. I, I believe that we will. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew D. Bishago. Thank you so much for coming on, Andy, if you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank Rodney McGilvery for the theme music. I want to thank whoever wrote this royalty-free track, The Tulip's Tear. So dramatic for writing it. Good vibes out there. Good vibes. So, what do you think? This guy completely make it up? I'm so honored. I, I find it hilarious. I posted this in a theoretical physics Facebook group because I was having conversations about time travel in there. And they want to kick me out. That's when you know this content's good. At least, that's the standard I live up to. Thank you for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Greg Bornstein here. We'll be coming back to you soon. Take care.